Well, let me uh, encourage you to stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And this is, um, this is the word of the Lord for this morning. And Paul writes and says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's a great joy to be with you today and uh, kind of a happy, sad uh, to invite you to turn for the very last time, at least in our series for now, to 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, and uh, as you're turning there, my name's Scott, I'm the lead pastor here at Doxa Church, and it's really awesome to have you with us to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day under the Lord's word. And uh, I was just reminded talking to Pastor Chris backstage that this is the uh, 11th book that this church has preached in its entirety since the church started in 2013. Cool. Um, you guys seem half-heartedly excited about that, which is fine. It's not a tribute attribute to me. I, I'm not really worried about myself having preached these books. What I think is encouraging is that we've gone through 11 books of the Bible together. Uh, and so when we talk about the whole counsel of God, we're trying to give you the whole counsel of God, which means I have 55 more books to go. And so if the Lord gives me strength, I, uh, I do endeavor to preach every one. Uh, many of you will have been long gone by then. Uh, but Lord willing, I will still be here. And so I will be preaching to your kids and to your grandkids that are in kids' men right now, okay? So next gen, if they'll have me, I'll keep preaching. Uh, hey, want to say something too about Uganda tonight. If you have a heart for missions, if you have a heart for church planting, if you all have a heart for reaching unreached peoples, tonight's the night you're going to want to come. I know Second Sunday is tough to get to. I know people got family lives, crazy stuff going on, plus prayer's a little bit scary in and of itself. Let me encourage you to come tonight if you have that heart. We're going to have Hal Hansen's going to be here. He's been going to Uganda for about, I'm going to butcher this now. He's in the room, 16 years, something like that. Two of our 6'4 interns went. We plan to go now regularly, and there's some really, really exciting plans. So if you at all have a heart for missions, let me encourage you tonight. I think the Uganda part will start at about 630 but let me get you there if that's your passion and that's your heart. Come partner with us as we seek to make much of Jesus Christ, as we seek to plant churches, as we seek to reach unreached people groups. Tonight is a great opportunity for you to get your feet wet in that, okay? That would be fantastic. Last message in our series on 1 Timothy, and the title of the message is Entrusted. 
First Timothy, I feel like, could have ended last week with this unbelievable doxological crescendo. You know what I'm talking about? Like, is there, I know this is first century, but it's kind of like, I think we would call it today a mic drop moment. You know, because when you start rattling off who God is and Paul gets fired up, he just starts, I could just see him. I'm just, I, I, I could, being a preacher with kind of an energy, it's like he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortal, immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be glory and eternal dominion, amen. And then he could just end right there. And we would all go home happy. But worship wouldn't have met its right destination if merely we're gazing at the goodness of God, but not responding to what we see. One of the things that's interesting about worship is that worship meets its proper response when doxology ends up leading us to duty. When what we see about who God is shapes how we then live in response to who God is. And that's what Paul's doing here. He kind of gives us a PS. And it almost seems like, just, just drop the quill at the, to him be eternal dominion, amen. I think everyone would have been okay with that, right? But he doesn't because he wants us to respond. It's not enough to go, yeah, that's great. How is God shaping you as a result of what you know about him? And so we come to this last section and to remind you where we've been, Paul gave this incredible charge to Timothy to keep in verse 14 of chapter 6 the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of Jesus. Paul has entrusted Timothy with this treasure trove of truth, of the gospel, laid out in the New Testament's teaching, the apostolic teaching that had been passed down to him, he being the next man of God up, as we talked about last week, now being passed down to us, guess who are the next men of God up? This generation, our preachers, our Christians who are faithfully standing upon the word once for all delivered to the saints. And Timothy was supposed to take what had been entrusted to him. He was supposed to persevere in its preservation, in its proclamation, and its application. And so you see there is a very weighty stewardship going on here. Now when I say stewardship... There's a reason stewardship comes up. It's because from the beginning of chapter 6 all the way to the end, Paul hasn't stopped thinking about stewardship. You remember in verse 5, we talk about the reality of money. He goes on that for a while all the way to verse 10. Then he talks about what Timothy needs to do in response to how the false teachers were operating. And then he's going to give a word on money again. And so stewardship is consuming Paul's mind. What does a steward do? A steward is a manager of someone else's stuff that he expects it to be taken care of and returned in one piece in the very same way you got it in the first place. And let me tell you about stewardship. When you're entrusted with something valuable of someone else's stuff, more often than not, it will keep you, it will make you uh, to treat it a little bit more seriously, won't it? Like, it's, it's almost interesting when you babysit someone else's kids, for example. 
what you will let your kids do is different than what you will let someone else's kids do because while they're under your watch, you're like, uh-uh, that ain't gonna happen here. Do you ever do that? Parents babysitting someone else's kids, yeah? If you were, uh, had a friend who had a Ferrari and he said, hey, you can drive it, there's a little bit of a difference between it being your Ferrari and being your friend's Ferrari, you know what I'm saying? Unless you don't like that friend very much. And then you drive that however you want, but there's this kind of like, serious, like, I better not mess this up. However it got out is the way it needs to come back. And I think that's a huge part of what we're going to talk about today. What you've been entrusted needs to come back to God in the same way he gave it to you. So the big idea for this morning is, listen, all of us are responsible for this. We have all been entrusted. You are God's steward, and he wants what's entrusted to you handled well. You are God's steward, and he wants what's entrusted to you handled well. Having stewardship on his mind, he's actually going to go back to how to steward your treasure well on earth, and then he's going to go forward to how do you steward the treasure of truth that's been entrusted to you. It's where he leaves Timothy. And as I think over our church, and I think of where we want to go and where God has taken us and what I see in our culture and what's happening, I, I, I recognize the fact that there's a very dangerous, real temptation to swerve away from being the kind of church that First Timothy calls us to be. There are a lot, unfortunately, of churches that if you were to look at what they've done over the span of their ministry and compare it to what 1 Timothy says, you would see two grossly different things. And what Paul is trying to say in part today is what has been entrusted to you over the totality of your ministry as a church, when you die and go to be with the Lord, I expect the church to be intact in the very same way, I gave it to you all these years ago. Do you see the responsibility? It's not just on me, it's on us together. Okay, but he doesn't start there. He's gonna start with your money first. Isn't that awesome? Now, some of you are like, hey, we've talked about money a lot. I'll just tell you, this is the enjoyment. God gives you stuff to enjoy part, okay? So there's like, you know, some positives and then some challenge, right? That's just how he does it. And he needs to get back to this because it's on his mind with verses 5 to 10 of chapter 6 in his head. Here's the first duty he gives us in this PS. Duty number one, here's how to handle treasure. You've been entrusted with it. Here's how to handle it. He says, as for the rich in this present age, which I love that, by the way, because it means there's also an age to come. There's people that are going to be rich in the age to come, but he's talking about those who are rich in this present age. He's discussing these folks, because Paul, in his mind, he's circling back to what was discussed earlier in chapter 6. Remember in verse 5, the false teachers imagined that godliness was a means of gain. And then he goes in verses 6 to 10 and goes, listen, if you want to be rich, those who desire to be rich, or we would just call the wannabe rich people, right? You, there are so many temptations in that. There are so many potential kinds of evil, verse 10, that come from a love of money, he came out so strong in that, the thought in Paul's mind had to be that perhaps 
people would think about the ones who were rich in the church, that that but maybe the ones that weren't rich in the church would think about the ones who were rich in the church, that they were lovers of money themselves, that they had maybe made it in an unjust way or had something to do with the false teaching. And so he has spoken to the wannabe rich about the temptations there, but he senses a need to address the already rich to protect within the church, perhaps against false accusations, that just because you have money doesn't mean you love it. And just because you have money doesn't mean you're shady like the false teachers and how you earned it. And so he gives a word. And, and before I, I talk about this, I, I imagine the fact, and I've actually preached this in part before, that as we look at this, um, there could be some of us who read this and go, as for the rich, okay, great. I'll uh, come back in in verse 20. So you get him, Pastor Scott, and, uh, and I'll jump back in and, and look for application in verse 20, okay? And uh, here's the thing, though. Uh, if you thought that, uh, you might be uh, sorely mistaken. If we go back and see what contentment is in verse 8, what do we know about contentment? But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So our contentment line is if you have sustenance and you have clothing, you have everything you need. So if you're making decisions discretionary decisions with your money, you're likely in this category. Some of you are like, man, I just, I don't know what it is. Like every month is so tight. I mean, I'm only able to eat at Ruth's Chris like three nights a week right now. This is frustrating. I'm just looking at my budget going, I'm barely making ends meet. Okay, first world problems. First world problems. We've always wanted to know who that person is, right? That goes three days a week to Roos Chris. That's not the only rich person. If you're making decisions today on what you will eat rather than that you eat, you're likely in this category. If you're making decisions today about what to wear rather than thank God you have clothes on today, you're likely in this category. If you've spent some time on Zillow or uh, a Redfin trying to figure out what house you want, rather than you have a covering over your head, you are likely in this category. Don't be deceived because you've elevated your lifestyle that you're among the poor. You are very much the majority, I would imagine, is likely in this category. Okay? may not feel like it, but I want to say... More of us than not probably need to hear this word. So you'll notice what he doesn't say here, though. As for the rich in this present age, it doesn't say charge them, shame on them for being rich. Shame on you for being rich. Don't you know any better? You're supposed to give all your money away. It doesn't say as for the rich in this present, present age, charge them to take a vow of poverty. How many pairs of shoes do you have? Cut it down. 12, make it one. Wear them all the time for everything. He didn't say that. Anyone glad? Anyone like, I have, you don't even want to know the ungodly amount of shoes that I have right now. Your husband had to build you like an extra portion of the closet just for your shoes. I suppose, or wife. Any, any guys out there with like, my, don't even admit that, guys. Don't even admit that. 
It's like, I got a shoe for every color. And I got, it's, it's not about shame on you for being rich. It's not his point. Instead, he gives four principles of stewardship. If you're rich in this present age, if you're making discretionary decisions, here's what you need to know. You ready? Because money can have you really, really, really quick. Four principles. Number one, steer clear of pride. Yeesh. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be high-minded is the word. It's actually the only time this word shows up in the New Testament right here. It's two compound words, meaning to think highly of yourself is the idea. There is something about money. And here's the thing. We are so often blinded to your sin. So if you're going, yeah, I know. I've seen this in other people. I'm likely talking to you. Okay? I know what you're talking about with those rich guys. They got such a cockiness to them. No, no, no. You. I'm talking to you right now. There is such a temptation when you have money to believe you did it yourself. To believe you were so smart. You made it happen. You worked the market. You bought when it was time to buy. You sold when it was time to sell. Who else was responsible for that than me? There starts to be this air of superiority. You exercise it over other people. You don't serve in the same way because you're so used to people serving you. You're not used to having people push back on you because your money has been such a resource. You've drawn people to you who will say things that you want to hear said to you to not rock the boat because your money is in some way benefiting them. You'll have a temptation to flaunt your money as well. And all of this, despite the fact that the Bible is so crystal clear, God help us humble ourselves. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You ever just receive your paycheck and thank God that it's his money entrusted to you? Not only did he give you the power to get wealth, he gave you all the skills that you're using to buy low and sell high. That ain't you. That was the grace of God in your life. Give thanks to the Lord for First Chronicles 29.12 says, both riches and honor come from you. Loved ones, this is a real temptation. If you believe because you're rich, and here's the thing, it's not like it just comes so almost naturally by being rich, it starts to just invade the way you think a really, really good thing would be to evaluate your own heart and get some objective people who are around you to give some say into that, right? Not the people who enjoy benefiting from the money that benefits their life, but someone who doesn't care and is willing to say a true word to you. That would be a really good thing for some of us. So he says, steer clear of pride. If you've got treasure, just I'm just telling you, pride is very much connected oftentimes with unchecked treasure. Here's the second thing he says. The issue is not just a misguided view of self, but it's a misplaced hope in stuff. Set not your hope on riches. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Because again, the idea is the more you have, the more you are inclined to trust in it. As shaky as that house of cards really is. And I don't know if you're watching the Dow Jones numbers, but COVID, uh, it took one of the biggest dips in history, right? 
I don't think anyone saw that coming. There's no one on the planet that has gone through a, a pandemic like we went through, and your finances can ebb and flow. And if you're watching it, man alive, you will see very, very quickly, it is a shaky, shaky house of cards. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, 24, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We ought to learn from the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12 who trusted in riches and built these barns so he could have all his stuff in there because all of his stuff being in there meant that he would need nothing for the rest of his life. All of his confidence was in the barns that he built and the stuff that he had and then the Lord took him and his money couldn't do anything before a holy God. He set his hope on his stuff and the parable says on that night, his life was demanded of him. We've got to understand again and again and again, money is a worship thing. You will either worship God and use money, or you will worship money and use God slash others. It's one or the other, and it has a dangerous effect. So he's saying, don't set your hope there, mainly because it's so uncertain. Because God doesn't want your heart attached to something that's going to be so volatile but rather, he says, on God. And this is the funny thing about trusting in money instead of on God. Our tendency is to trust in it when we have it, but God's the one who owns it and gives it anyway. That's the funny part. How it devolves from God who, what does it say? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God's the giver. God's the owner. God's the provider. God's the one doing these things, giving to us what we need for our enjoyment, it says. Riches aren't ultimate. God is. God dispenses those riches. Don't put your hope in money. Put it in God. He'll never fail you. And whatever he gives you, listen, he's given to you for your enjoyment. So we don't have to be like, hot potato with money, right? Everything that we came and we talked about this, like, ooh, money, it's bad. It's like, no, recognize it's from God. Steward it as God would have you to steward it. Enjoying it as a good gift from him, and you're going to be in a good spot. But don't set your hope on something that will let you down so horribly. It's interesting because the way he transitions here, it's almost as if to say that the highest form of pleasure, almost by implication, is not by indulging yourself, by having more and spending more on me. That's the idea, right? You have more, expand your lifestyle. You have more, expand your lifestyle again. You have more, expand your lifestyle. It's not bad to expand your lifestyle, but if that's the only thing you do with your money, I think what he's getting at here is, listen, the highest form of pleasure is not ultimately indulgence, but eternal investment. That's what the highest form of pleasure is. Make sure you're committed to that. For the third principle of stewardship is seek to do good. If you have money, steer clear of pride. God, help us. Don't set your hope on the money. Set it on the Lord. So when you lose it, you're not so devastated. Because he, the very one, the very same God who gave it to you in abundance in certain seasons and gives it to you in limited measure in other seasons will always take care of you. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Seek him. Seek his kingdom. Everything else, he'll take care of it. He knows what you need, okay? 
and then this, seek to do good. Because one of the things with money is when you have it and you're trusting in it, you don't want to give it away because it is your security. But see, when God's your security, you can seek to do good and multiply your money in other ways. Seek to do good. Okay, so what are we talking about here? It's amazing for as much as we talk about investment, I said this a couple weeks ago, we don't spend as much time talking about what's your eternal investment strategy. Anyone have one? Like, what does that look like besides I, I give, hopefully you give, but we'll talk about that in a second. Like, do you ever think about that? You're like, oh, if I said, I'm just curious, how many people have a financial advisor in here? Would you be willing to raise your hand? I have a financial advisor that I work with. Just a little hand like this, just so no one sees, but I can see. Yeah, because I know it's like embarrassing. You're like, yeah, if you, I raise my hand right now, you may beeline for me and try to like ask me to give and stuff. Like, nope, not going to do that. Not going to do that. Okay, so quite a few people. And, uh, and I wonder, I'm not even going to ask, but I just wonder how many people are like, what's my eternal investment strategy? Could you even articulate what the Bible says about it, let alone are you doing it? That would be my question for you. That maybe as robust as your control of your money is and trust it to a professional's hand to make sure it does all that you want it to do and more, have you figured out what part of this are you sending ahead of yourself? Okay, because I do mean investment strategy when I say eternal investment strategy, when he says seek to do good, the idea about what Paul is saying here is same thing as in investments. You want to make your money work for you, right? You want to take your money, here's the idea, and you want your money to make more money. Right? Some of you are doing that, hopefully. You're taking your money and you're trying to make it make you more money. That sounds really good. The same thing is true here. Use your money to make you rich in an eternal category. Leverage your resources to make you rich in a category that will follow you to heaven because your funds will not. Revelation 14, 13 says your good deeds will actually follow you. So he says they're do good. They're to be rich in good works rich in them, not poor in them. Rich means much, means lots. Out of your riches, you have the privilege, you have the opportunity to invest eternally in others, that out of your riches, you would enrich others and so imitate God who richly provides for us out of his abundance, making himself all the richer. Isn't that awesome how God does that? God is constantly pulling out of his resource of riches, dispensing it upon us without being any less the rich. And in fact, because he's now enriched you, that richness has spread to others. He's saying, do the same thing. Be like God in this way. Don't hoard your riches as if it's God. Hope in God and be faithful to do good, to be rich in good works. Maybe for some of you, it's the fact that you make so much money, you could literally just let your money make money and you could avail yourself of kingdom work. Maybe that's what you need to do could be a really good thing. Maybe for others, it's like, man, I'm working really hard, but I can enable someone else to do it by giving sacrificially so that that person could be set up to do that. There's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. Maybe you're thinking about the church. You want to be rich in good works. 
you would think it would start in the church, right? And, and let me just say, I, I am so encouraged by our church, right? I, I had no idea when Katie came up here and gave that announcement about children's ministry, I had no idea that was what was going down. That we got all the volunteers we needed and more on a waiting list. That's how the church should be, period. Okay? That's how this church should be. As it grows, and I said this at the 11, but I want to say it again here, my concern is that there's potentially the ability for a chunk of the church, just a kind of an outer edge of the church, to merely take in a Sunday morning as a consumer, but not a participator. And this isn't that church. I don't want it to be that church. And, and, I, and I'm, listen, if you're an unbeliever coming and you're checking out Christianity, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Stay, hang, get saved. Trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, okay? But if you're kind of like, man, I like, I like the shtick. I like the Sunday morning thing, but I don't really plan to get involved. This is just not that place. We're not looking to add butts and seats. We're, we're looking to get guys and gals on mission for Jesus here. We're looking to spend ourselves. We're the kind of church that when there's a need, everybody responds. Now, someone else will do it? No, no, you'll do it. We're all going to step up. We're all going to be in this together, right? Like one of the things about children's ministry in general, let me just say this, is like if, if it should just be, I wish it was almost just an automatic thing that if you come into the church, you serve in some way in kids' men. Right? Number one, because it's our next generation. But number two, because the needs are so there. And if you're like, hey, I'm not a kid's person, it doesn't stop you from interacting with parents on the way in in some strategic role. And I'm telling you right now, even though Easter is filled, there are always needs for children's ministry. So if you have yet to find a place to serve here on a Sunday morning, let me just encourage you, children's ministry is a great place. It is not a waste. Be rich in good works. Build up your eternal investment strategy. Some of you love prayer. I just heard this week that our prayer team is not fully staffed. So we don't have enough volunteers to meet and gather with God's people after every service at the 9 and the 11 throughout the month. So if you're into that, download the app and sign up and get on our prayer team, right? There's so many ways that you can serve. We should at least be seeking to be rich in good works here. And then he says this, steer clear of pride, set not your hope on riches, seek to do good. And the last one here he says is share generously, okay? Share generously. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, qualitatively good things, to be rich in good works. Again, even that is broad. We don't see specific works here. Make them qualitatively good. And then he says this, to be generous and ready to share. Is this our mentality? Is this your mentality that you live on the edge of your seat eager to meet needs? That's how we should be. Are you that way? Eager on the edge of your seat to meet needs. Because we got a whole bunch of cool stuff coming here, and there's more stuff I'm sure that you're involved in other places. I'm so excited for Eden uh, Academy that's getting started for next year, but I will say right now, if you're looking for an opportunity to give, that's one. 
right? If you're looking to spend some of that money and save it up for an eternal future, that's a great one to consider giving to, and more information will be coming out about that in the weeks to come. We've got an opportunity and some strategy just at the beginning, starting about reaching an unreached people group in Uganda. If you care about getting the gospel to people who have never heard it before in an entirely Muslim context, that's an awesome opportunity for you. We as a church are looking to do this. I don't know if you've heard what our plan is, but over the next five years, we're increasing our own generosity by 2% a year until we're at 20% of our money is going directly towards mission-minded endeavors out of our church and beyond. Through our church, training people up and then sending people out to do work right? So that when you give, there's a confidence. Because I know, I get it. A lot of times you give to a church, you're like, what the heck is that going to? We want to be transparent with what we do, and we just frankly want to be missional with what we do. We're not looking to build an empire to ourselves. We're looking to take God's best and send them out to do God's work. It's going to be very, very different. So that being said, this term ready to share is so awesome because it's actually the word koinonia here. So you're to be generous, and you're to be ready to share. And it's the idea of it's more than just writing a check. This is investing in a common life with others financially. Like we're in an assembly of God's people pursuing kingdom work, and we're doing it together. He's telling the church, listen, you may have other things outside of the church that you give to, but in the church, that koinonia, that fellowship that we share is open pocketbooks as well. How are we strategizing together to make much of Jesus? How are we strategizing together? I'll give to that. I'll step up and give to that. Where are we going next? What are we doing next? Let's get behind that as a people ready to share corporately in this opportunity corporately in this giving. And the reason why I think that's so impactful is because it's very much not modeled in church today, but I think it's quite well modeled in our church for the most part, which I'm grateful for. According to nonprofit source in 2018, let me just give you a sense of where giving stats are for the church. Those who give 10% is less than one in four entities in the church. So less than 25% give 10%, which used to be kind of this like principle normal. Now you're talking about less than one in four entities do that. On average, Christians give 2.5% of their incomes to churches. Gross, not net as well, by the way. During the Great Depression, they gave 3.3%. Our church's core is incredibly generous. We continue to be two things we wanted to be faithful to. We've called you guys to a budget that supports more ministry that we need to do both here and hopefully out of our church, and you guys have answered that, and we've tried to be faithful to not spend all the money that comes in, right? So that's the goal, is we're trying to save well, we're trying to give well, and we're trying to steward well, and that continues to take place. But what's shocking is that bulk of what has been given so far this year towards our budget, which by God's grace at this point we are 6% in front of, thank the Lord, is that that's being done with a larger than the non-rich chunk of people in the church give nothing. So you know what I'm saying by the non-rich, right? You got to give the non-rich. I mean, we're talking about the rich here. There's a larger chunk in the church than is in the non-rich category 
in other words, can give that give nothing. And what this is saying is you're ready to share. So if this is the body you belong to, time to saddle up and join everybody else. We should be hand in hand. It's not equal giving how much did you give. It's equal generosity. We're going to be generous together, right? That's the mentality. So are we in this as missional partners engaged with one another? That would be my question for those of us in here who have yet to kind of, let me just put it there, ante up and make that part of my corporate commitment to the believers here in this local church that we will also be contributing members. And if you think that means that money's going to be going out of your pocket and therefore you're going to be at a loss, you definitely misunderstand the eternal investment strategy because there is a return that the rich can expect. And Paul describes it right here. He says, you're to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for, your, for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life or he's getting at eternal life here. So, so what he's saying is your good deeds that you're doing, and I pray you're being rich in, that you're giving that's taking place, that I pray is generous, is evidence that you have taken hold of eternal life. Now, when we talk about eternal life, we often talk about its quantity, that it's eternal. We very infrequently mention that eternal life is really also about a qualitatively different life than this life. That when you take hold of eternal life, that qualitatively distinct life of the age to come, purchased by Jesus for a people on the cross, confirmed in his resurrection, what Jesus Christ did for those who trust in him is he has redeemed us from the stingy taskmasters of idols who take and freed us to serve God who gives, enjoying your present eternal life even now. Not a life that you get in the future. Eternal life is ours, Christian, now. And in that eternal life, we have a completely different mentality because we see things the way God has revealed those things in his word. We see things in the way that God has established for the age to come, and we understand that sharing wealth is in reality an acquisition of spiritual wealth that is building a solid foundation for our eternal future. So giving is important because giving shows that you're living eternal life right now, meaning you have it right now, meaning you see things differently than the world sees it because you're a Christian, because you know Jesus, because you've trusted in him by faith, because through your faith in Jesus, you have been gifted eternal life and now you see life differently. No longer are idols on the throne of your life ruling and tyrannically dominating you, but instead you have been set free to serve the most high God. As you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you live by a new economy, you have a new outlook on life, you have a new joy, you have a new approach to circumstances, you have a new approach to discouragement, right? Everything changes because of Jesus. And those who have found life in Christ, and I would invite those who have not found life in Christ to trust in Jesus. You need Jesus. And he will change everything. And he will show his evidence of his work in our lives 
by the way we deal with our finances. But then, Paul pivots to a final spiritual stewardship. And he gives a second duty. He's still talking about stewardship. He's just not talking about treasure. Now he's talking about truth. Which in and of itself is an incredible stewardship. And he's talking specifically to Timothy. And we've heard this, we've seen this O before. Anyone who's been with me before, when a text has had an O in it, we, we know how we've used that in the past, right? Okay. So there's, there's different ways the O is used. And in the past, what did it sound like? For those of you who have been here in the past, it sounded like, Whoa. like, oh, man. Right? Yes. Praise God. This one is, oh, please, 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 please. It's different. Please, Timothy, with what I'm going to say to you, please, please do it. One is like, blow your mind. Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. And this one is, oh, This is being entrusted to you. God wants it back in the exact same way he gave it to you. This is, this is the last words of your most esteemed, faithful Christian mentor in your life kind of seriousness. Oh, Timothy, do this. Safeguard the faith, he says. Safeguard the faith. Guard it. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. You could say that's why Paul wrote to Timothy to stay in Ephesus in the first place. He wanted the deposit guarded. Lest we leave First Timothy without walking through how central that theme has been. Can I just walk you through all of First Timothy to remind you again of this? How important it is that we've been entrusted with guarding the good deposit. We've been entrusted with a church that has conduct and organization that matches the Bible. The idea that our church would shift down the road and be something other than the New Testament model is what would break Paul's heart. And he's been pressing on Timothy. It needs to be restored to this model as laid out by the apostolic teaching. Paul himself gives it. I'm going to go back to chapter 1 and show you how all of this has been about guarding the good deposit. He starts in chapter 1, verse 3, and says... Charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. That was the first problem. They were teaching hetero, not in line with what the apostles were teaching doctrine. And therefore, he says in verse 4, not to get caught up in false teachings, controversies, and questions that end up just creating confusion about the Old Testament and contradictions 
that ultimately end up getting you to Jesus and how you're a sinner and how Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul would say. And so he says, stay away from that stuff that's not on God's plan of salvation, whose aim is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, because of this different teaching that's going on, some persons, verse 6, have swerved from these truths and have wandered away into vain discussion. So why he tells Timothy in verse 18 of chapter 1 to wage the good warfare. This is all about guarding the deposit. Wage the war. Because by rejecting these truths, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Then in chapter 2, he has to get into all of the applicational issues, correcting the bad fruit that was coming from this erroneous root of bad teaching. And he has to deal in verses 1 to 7 with exclusivism of salvation, basically this belief that the church thought some people could get saved and some people couldn't get saved. And Paul says, wait a minute, our God is a God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's our God. Okay, so while you believe only some people can get saved and others can't, everybody needs to get saved and all who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus will be saved. Then he has to get into dealing with the men who instead of praying were angry in church. And he has to address the divine design distortion where women were rising up into places of authority and teaching over the corporate gathering of God's people and Paul has to lay that out and say that's one of the fruits of bad teaching that's come into the church. And then just in case we were unclear about his word to women leading in the position of elder pastor with that authoritative presence, he explains that elders are to be men in chapter 3. That are to have a certain kind of exquisite character that is modeled in the home and able to teach the word of God, which was so important to being an elder in the local church. And they were to have deacons that were also servants of the Lord, assistants to the elders who had a character that backed them up as well. Because he gets back in chapter four to talk about error in the church, that people were stressing certain things that weren't actually biblical things to stress And people were departing from the faith because men failed to guard the truth and thus folks were led astray. And that's why he says in verse 6 that Timothy would be a good servant if he is trained up in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And then goes down in verse 16 of chapter 4 to say, Timothy, you need to keep a close watch on yourself and on this teaching. Then in chapter 5, he starts to get into how the church is supposed to revolve around serving and caring for others, really namely who to honor, but he speaks into that not only of widows, which is a predominant section of this, but also he addresses elders who need to be laboring in the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Because if anyone gets cute and starts teaching what doesn't agree with sound doctrine as is revealed in the scriptures, you're to mark this man according to chapter 6, verse 3, as proud and combative and corrupted by evil desires. Which, by the way, in verses 11 to 16, the man of God is to flee and pursue godliness in line with the gospel and fight the good fight of the faith until Jesus Christ returns. That's the goal. Guard the deposit. Do you see it? No? Okay, cool. I see it really clearly. This is what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to get cute with God's word. We're not supposed to change what it says. One of the things we have going on, you ever heard the term um, educated beyond your intelligence? 
I think we're in an age right now that, that there's a danger that some of us in the church with our PhDs and our, all of our deep thinking and that we're educated beyond our simple obedience to the Lord. And so if someone's just constantly bringing like, hey, and I know this has been said and for 1,800 years of church history, it was believed consistently this way, but now if you really do the work here and you start to figure out what church history said and what philosophy said and what this said and what that said, you'll see that they were wrong all along. So 1,800 years and then you showed up. If that's not chronological snobbery, I don't know what is. When, when he says guard the deposit here, it's, it's used actually of Timothy's own spiritual life. It's used of his ministry at large, but that's because at his core, he was committed to preserving and passing on the apostles' teaching or the Christian faith itself. In the ancient world, when you would hear the term guard the deposit, it was this high obligation of having another person's possession, keeping it safe, and returning it exactly as it was. That's what I want to do here. God help us. Because it is so hard to stay faithful for 50 years as a church. Let alone five years, let alone nine years, let alone, where are we, nine years? Yes, nine years, almost. Like what I want to do is take what the Lord's given to us in his word, preach it, seek to do our best to live it. And then when I die, the church is just entrusted to whoever's next, right, is the idea. And I hope they find it in exactly the same place God gave it to us with this book. Do you understand? That is so important. Why isn't it happening more? Why don't more people care about that? Doesn't it break your heart? It breaks my heart. We got to be doing this. We got to be giving it back to him without distortion, without dilution, dilution. Please, God, help us persevere in its preservation, in this proclamation, and in its application. Yes. I don't know who that was. Yes. And then this. Safeguard the truth and shun error. Safeguard the faith and shun error. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. What an interesting way to put this. He's like, you know how like some people are, and it's not bad to read broadly, but like you don't need to major in the heretics. Like, ah, I nailed it. I know all the heretics. I'm starting, starting to kind of believe like them too, but man, I know a lot about them. I'd rather have you just know the Bible really well and then just be so simple with it where you're like, uh, I don't have the degrees, but that's not why my Bible says. Now, this is not a position of power anymore, but why not? If we know what the Bible is, which is our source of authority over everything else, wouldn't it be great to just get back to like the simplicity of that's not what my Bible says? Now, are there going to be ways and places that, you know, are not super clear? Sure. But the vast, vast majority is stunningly clear. We may not like what it says all the time, but can we be okay? We're just going to bow a knee and go forward in that. 
can we be okay in some of the things that there is room to disagree on? We're going to wrestle with it. There's not, you don't have to be absolutely precise on everything. You'd be faithful to teach it, and where there's space to agree to disagree, we can push one another with the idea that we'll always bow to the scriptures. Okay, we'll always bow to the scriptures, right? I'm talking about like eschatological positions, things like that, that it's like, hey, good men in this church disagree, and women. But when he says shun error here, he's talking about this word irreverent means it, used, it was used to refer to everything outside of the sacred grounds of the temple. Anything common, anything outside of the sacred place, i.e. anything that has no connection with God. So all the scriptural alterations and manipulations that have nothing to do with God or what he wants communicated, he says, I want you to avoid that. He adds the word Babylon to make it clear. What is Babel? It's empty utterances. It's you said stuff, but it wasn't truthful. It's that you may have sophisticated articulation of that thought. You may have footnotes attached to it, and you may, have an, you may be an author with degrees, but if it swerves from scripture, it's just Babel. And contradictions is also where the, we get the word antithesis from, and it has this idea, it's a technical term used in classical education of counterpropositions in a debate. So he goes, I need you to avoid all the people that go, hey, I know the Bible says this, but I found, and let me explain to you how that's not actually what it means now. And they were living in a patriarchal society, and so there's different things that now we can deconstruct from where it was to where it is, and I think we need to be like, um, let's just not go there. Let, let's stick with what the Bible actually says over and against any counter affirmations to what Scripture plainly says, any opposing ideas masking as a kind of pseudo-intellectualism that poses as knowledge, which is almost like Gnosticism hasn't taken place yet, but it's the idea of this, these early forms of what would eventually become this second century heresy in the church called Gnosticism, this secret knowledge, right, that still kind of exists today in the sense of like, get a teacher who has a new perspective on something that no one has ever seen before. That's worth avoiding, Because, see, the issue is that some by professing this stuff, some by taking it in and imbibing this stuff, in so doing have swerved, have missed the mark, have deviated from the truth. So, so don't do it. Just shun error and safeguard the faith. This very quickly becomes, if we're not careful, like a game. You ever played the game Telephone? Where like you start with like something awesome, right? Whatever you're saying. And then by the end, it's something completely different. Paul's going, the word that I've given you in that first telephone thing, I've passed down to generation after generation after generation after generation after generation. And you know what I want Doxa Church and Pastor Scott to do? I want them to say and do the same things as the book has said and taught the church for 2,000 years. I want you to do that. And that's precisely why the outro is so short. It's one of Paul's shortest. Grace be with you. Get on your horse. Don't look at me. What are you doing? Let's respond, right? That kind of idea. It's like, okay, I'm done. Grace be with you. Get after it. Why grace? Well, thank God it's grace. So we need grace to strengthen and empower us all. God, help us. This is, this is so serious to him. 
this ought to be so serious to us. Grace to empower us to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us. May we be that church. May you be praying that we be that people that has taken what's been given to us and will return it to God in the next generation the same way we found it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of studying another book of the Bible, for seeing your hand over um, every last verse, knowing that your spirit sovereignly superintended the writing of Paul to reveal to us what you wanted revealed about the order and conduct of the church so that the mystery of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ would be put on display. That in the way you're saving sinners and restoring them to a right view of vocation, to a right view ultimately of you, that you're setting them free from idolatry and sin. God, continue that work in this church and help us preach the faithful age-old message that sets people free for it is the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, to everyone who believes. May it be preserved, proclaimed, and applied in all its various ways. In Jesus' name, amen.